Grab your Bibles and stand with me for our scripture reading this morning. Turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, we'll be reading verses 1 through 35. Pastor Bruce starts a brand new series this morning, Beyond Borders. Today's topic being a gospel that is worth defending. We can find our text in the book of Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can find it on page 637. And listen along while I read Acts chapter 15. Verses 1 through 35. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And that caused them great joy to all the brethren. When they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Bartimaeus and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles and elders and brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that's heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It has seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send you chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. 
So when they sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel, a gospel that is worth defending. We ask that you would have, uh, give us open hearts and minds to learn from your word, to defend your word at all costs, and just uh, be with Pastor Bruce as he brings us this message, and that we would learn uh, just the truths that you reveal to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Super excited to be here this morning. I hope you are as well. I'm excited as we begin a brand new series uh, called Beyond Borders. And we're going through the book of Acts here. We're focusing on uh, chapters 15 through 20. And uh, the purpose of this series is really to get our hearts and our minds ready for our upcoming World Outreach Celebration, which you just saw there. It's October the 25th through the 29th, and I just want to encourage you, mark your calendars. In fact, pull your phones out now, put it on your calendar and whatnot, whatever you need to do, and make plans to attend a World Outreach Celebration, because you don't want to miss it. Uh, now, this is actually, for some of you who have been with us over the last few years, maybe some of you are new here, maybe you've been attending just for the last year or so, but this is actually part four in, a, in the series that we've been going through in the book of Acts. And this study, the stud, to study Acts, is really to study the mission of Jesus Christ being fulfilled beyond borders to every people group. And that's what we have seen through the first 14 chapters. We have seen God use His church to spread the gospel to the Jews first, and then beginning to spread it to the Gentiles across the Roman Empire. Now just think about this with me. Gentiles, that is people like you and me, they were coming to Jesus in droves. I mean left and right. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, Philip had proclaimed the gospel among the Samaritans there. And Peter preached the gospel to a Roman centurion named Cornelius along with his family and friends in Acts 10. And then you come to Acts 11 and you see that scattered believers made their way up to Antioch where a predominantly Gentile church was started. And it was from that church at Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were sent out on the very first missionary journey described in chapters, chapters 13 and 14. And it was in that missionary journey where both Jews and Gentiles came to know Jesus Christ by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 14 ends with this summary in verse 27. And when they had come, to, come, had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now that was unprecedented. Before this moment, the Antioch church had known very little in fact, only a few Gentiles who had been saved. But now they were beginning to hear reports from Paul and Barnabas of numerous Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now you've got to put yourself in this church here at Antioch. 
and think about the excitement those people were ex experiencing. Think about how thrilled that crowd must have been as they listened to story after story of what God was doing. Think about the enthusiasm that filled this church at Antioch. And it's really clear up to this point in Acts, the gospel was moving beyond borders, almost like a freight train, and there is no stopping it until we come to Acts 15 here, where the gospel was threatened and the mission of going beyond borders was almost derailed. What was a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful, celebratory scene at the very end of Acts 14 soon became the good, the bad, and the ugly here in Acts 15. And here's what I mean by that. Look at, on the screen, if you're, you're welcome to take notes if you want to pull the insert out. But Acts 15 depicts the missional messiness of going beyond borders with the gospel of Jesus Christ. After 25 years of ministry, I have come to this realization that whenever two or more people get together, it will get messy sooner or later. Mark it down. It will get messy. The mission gets messy. Ministry gets messy. Missions gets messy. Why? Because people are messy. That's why. As someone put it, the local church is called to do the Great Commission and to deal with the problem that doing the Great Commission creates. In other words, the church is full of people who, although are saved by a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ, are still very much imperfect. There are times when you're going to see the ugliness of sin rear its head. People will disappoint you. Whenever two or more people get together, it gets what? Messy. I mean, just look in your own family, right? You can all tell stories about that. And now you bring families of families together in a local church family and nothing changes. It's just part of it. And so our grow groups are launching tonight. Get ready. It will get messy at times in your grow group. And if you're part of my group or a group that has babies and toddlers, it literally gets messy. And figuratively, too. This is just the way it is. The reality is, when people get together, sooner or later, you will see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's what we see vividly here in Acts 15. In fact, this, we see it in two different stories. Uh, the first story is what Zach read for us. It takes up the bulk of the chapter. And we see this in a doctrinal conflict in the churches, which we'll focus on this morning. But we also see it, which we'll look at next week, in a personal conflict between two missionaries. Now, this missional messiness here in Acts 15, it reared its ugly head when some troublemakers from Jerusalem came down to the Antioch church and started undermining the gospel. And in so doing, they were perverting the good news into bad news. And that's always the case when anything is added to the gospel truth that we are saved by grace alone. Simply put, this was a critical, critical, critical moment in the history of the church. The gospel was under attack here. 
So how should we respond when the gospel is under attack, and especially when it's being attacked from within the church? This was not an attack from without. So what does this mean for us today? Something that took place a long, long time ago in church history here in Acts 15. Well, notice this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the overlying principle to take away. If you get nothing else, take this home with you. The gospel is always worth defending. It is always worth defending. Indeed, when it is threatened, it must be defended no matter what the cost. That is the big idea to take away from what Zach read for us in these 35 verses. The gospel is always worth defending. Now, let me also say, fighting for the sake of fighting is sin. But fighting to preserve the gospel of grace is vital for the church, not just in Acts, but also in every generation since the days of Acts. Yes, we should strive to avoid conflict, but there are those few times when we must engage in conflict in order to stand for what is essential and true. And the gospel is the foundational doctrine that's always worth defending when it is threatened. Paul declared in Romans 1.6, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But here in Acts 15, this gospel for the Gentiles was being threatened by some pharisaical Jewish believers. John Stott summarizes the seriousness of this issue here in Acts 15 when he writes, the issue was immense. The way of salvation was at stake. The gospel was in dispute. The very foundations of the Christian faith were being undermined. So what do we learn from this? What should we take away from this? How does this apply to us? Well, let me give you three points, three applicational points to kind of take home, to apply for us while still dealing with the, the details, if you will, in this text and in this a dispute, a doctrinal conflict, if you will. The first is we must affirm that salvation is by grace. We must affirm this. Acts 15 opens with some men from the largely Jewish church in Jerusalem visiting the largely Gentile church in Antioch. And let me tell you, they didn't come for food and fellowship. Instead, they came to make an issue of how the Gentiles are saved. Notice what they were telling these Gentile believers in verse 1. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? You cannot be saved, they said. Now let me just give a little bit of background here. A lot of the first Christians were Jews who had been raised on Old Testament law. And one of the most important Jewish laws there was is that every male had to be circumcised. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, or between Abraham and his descendants. And we might think of it this way. It was a, the mark that separated the people of God from the rest of the world. So what that meant was a lot of these new Jewish Christians were teaching now, if you're going to be part of God's family, you have to be circumcised. 
And what this meant was that the new members' classes in the early church that day consisted mostly of women and children, for obvious reasons. All the guys were standing outside telling their wives, Honey, go on ahead. I'm not so sure about this. Don't know if I want to be a part of that. But circumcision wasn't the only thing that they were insisting on in addition to the gospel of grace. You drop down to verse 4, and it's like they were also, or verse 5, and when the church leaders got together to discuss this issue, verse 5 says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so the question here that they're raising was, was not can the Gentiles be saved. That's not the issue. The issue was, can Gentiles be saved without first becoming Jews? And in their minds, these, these, some of these Jewish believers' minds, the answer was no, they can't. But this was a blatant attack on the gospel of grace. They were insisting that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Now here's the problem with that. The problem with this is that if the Gentiles did something in order to be saved, then their salvation wouldn't come from God's grace. It would come from their works. These men are not saying it's circumcision instead of Jesus. They're not saying it's the law of Moses instead of Jesus. They were saying it's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus keeping the law of Moses. So these men from Jerusalem, they weren't even outright denying Jesus Christ as the Savior, but they were saying, you know what? We believe in Jesus, but He's just not enough. He's not enough. It's Jesus plus something. In essence, they were saying a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It's not enough for them to simply trust in Jesus Christ. They must also obey Moses. They were insisting that salvation is by grace plus works. They were trying to smuggle in works alongside grace as the basis of our salvation. But notice this, the gospel can't be amended without destroying it, and that's exactly what they were doing. They were adding to the gospel. They were amending the gospel. And in so doing, they were destroying the very essence of the gospel. The gospel, plus or minus anything, is not the gospel. Whenever we try to add some of our own works to grace, it is no longer grace. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the rest of Scripture confirms that salvation is by grace plus nothing. An attack on the gospel here. What it was doing is it was an attack on the message of the gospel, but it was also an attack on the mission of of the gospel. You see, the message of the gospel is salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone. And the mission of that gospel is to go beyond borders, proclaiming and sharing that gospel message to every people group. This is the mission that Paul and Barnabas just gave a report on to the Antioch church. And so you can see why they now think, you know what, this is an issue. 
In fact, this is a big issue. We just can't stand idly by and walk away from this. Oh, no. Again, when the gospel is attacked, it must be defended. And that is exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. When these men from Jerusalem showed up insisting that salvation is grace plus works, verse 2 says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. In other words, this was a major conflict. The good news of the gospel was being undermined. And Paul and Barnabas weren't about to just walk away. Instead, they stood up and defended it. According to verse 2, the Antioch church decided it would be best then to send Paul and Barnabas and certain other men, it also says, back to the church in Jerusalem and have this very issue settled by all the apostles and the elders. When it comes to defending the gospel, we must first affirm that salvation is by grace alone. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did here. But this also brings us to a second applicational point. We must acknowledge that salvation is of God. It is of God. Verse 6 says, So the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. You might be saying, well, consider what matter? Well, the matter of how one is saved. You see, here's the question in dispute. It came down to this. Are Gentiles saved by grace plus works? or by grace alone in Christ alone. That was the issue confronting the church leaders here at the Jerusalem church. This is the question of all questions. This was a massive issue facing the church. John Stott, again, describes the issue this way. It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of Gentiles, but could they approve of conversion without circumcision? of faith in Jesus without the works of the law, and of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion into Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world? And the church of Christ not as a Jewish sect, but as the international family of God? That's, that's what they came together to discuss and to settle. In fact, verse 7 says, And when there had been much dispute. Now, that word there doesn't refer to a heated argument necessarily in name calling. It rather refers to a healthy discussion and debate. They all had the same goal in mind. When these church leaders came together, the same goal was the truth of the gospel, the health of the church, and ultimately the glory of God. And so what we have in verse 7 all the way to verse 18 are basically three arguments from these leaders in the church. And what all of them are saying is this, that salvation is by grace because salvation is of God. Now, let me just show you this briefly here. First of all, you see salvation by grace, it's seen in the eternal plan of God. Peter, he saw God's plan of salvation by grace because of the work of the Holy Spirit, or he saw it through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so after much debate, Peter finally stands up to speak, and we come to verse 7, and Peter says this, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so what Peter's doing, he's taking them back about 10 years. And he's reminding them what happened in the home of Cornelius, that Roman centurion, who was the first Gentile convert there. And he then tells, tells these leaders who are gathered together, he tells them in verses 8 and 9, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And so Peter's testimony basically comes down to this. Listen, the Spirit of God was at work to save the Gentiles by grace. And God accepts them just as He accepts us as Jews. So why do you want to mess with what God has done? And what God is doing. Now, this quieted the crowd long enough for Barnabas and Paul to testify in verse 12. And what they testified about was all the miracles that God had done as they preached the gospel of grace to the Gentiles on their missionary journey that they just reported about. God did some amazing things on that first missionary journey to validate the gospel of grace and that this was indeed the eternal plan of God from the very beginning. In fact, you might think of it this way. With these miracles, God was kind of putting his stamp of approval on the Gentile salvation by grace. When Paul and Barnabas finished speaking, James began to speak. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And he is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so it's kind of like when James speaks, his, his, what he has to say carries a lot of weight. His voice has authority to it. And the people are really paying attention now. And James expressed his full agreement with Peter that God was saving the Gentiles by grace. He says in verse 14, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, don't overlook that because that is a tremendous phrase. That is a monumental phrase. You're like, what phrase? The phrase, a people for his name. You're like, why is that so such a big deal? Here's why. Because for a Jew to say that about the Gentiles is amazing because that phrase was strictly reserved for the Jewish people. But James now, as a Jew himself, he is applying that phrase to the Gentiles because he recognized that God was also calling Gentiles to be a people for his name. Folks, if you're not excited, that's you. That's us. If you're not a Jew here, that means you're a Gentile. That means we are a people for God's name. We get to be a part of this. And that is a glorious thing that James is saying here. Oh, it's awesome. And then James, he stated that the prophets agree with this conclusion. He now goes to Scripture, and he takes them back to the Old Testament, and he proves that this is all the eternal plan of God, and he takes them back to the prophet Amos, in Amos 9, and he refers to verses there. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. Notice what James says. We're, we're now in Acts 15, 15, verses 16 and 17. And James says, after this, 
He's now referring to Amos. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Now, basically, here's what James is saying. That according to the Old Testament prophets, God's people consist of two concentric groups. you got two groups. And at the core will be Israel, which is in reference to the tabernacle of David. That is Israel. And gathered around Israel will be the Gentiles, and that's referenced by that phrase, the rest of mankind who will share the blessing of the kingdom of God without becoming Jewish proselytes. That's the essence of what James is saying with this Old Testament quote here. In other words, and it's, it's phenomenal, and we don't quite get it all because we don't, didn't live in that day and age, but James is reassuring his Jewish audience here that the inclusion of Gentiles, that's people, us, into the church does not abolish God's plan and promises for Israel. There's a future for Israel in the coming millennial kingdom. And that is a good thing. That means God still keeps his promises. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper to Israel. And the Israel is not church. The church is not Israel. They're not one and the same. There's a future for Israel. And there's a future for the church. And yes, we, it's a glorious thing that we are one body in Christ still. And so James is agreeing with Peter, Barnabas, and Paul that salvation by grace among all the people groups is all part of the eternal plan of God from before the foundations of the world. Second, though, we see this. Salvation by works is seen in the universal failure of man. You go back to Peter's testimony. And this was basically his conclusion. Look what Peter says in verse 10. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? In that word there, he's referring to the Gentile believers, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. In other words, he's saying no one is able to keep the law of Moses. We've been trying to do it for thousands of years and we have failed miserably. As Jews, we have not been able to do this. No one can. So why are we putting that burden on the Gentiles when we as Jews can't even keep the law? Now, it sounds like the problem is the law, but it's not. The problem is us. You see, the law has its purpose and it serves its purpose. The law is, is, was good. And it was good in this way. It shows us how sinful we are, how messed up we are as human beings, how fallen we are. And it shows us how much we need a Savior to do for us what we could never do on our own. And that is to fulfill the law and save ourselves from our sins. And that's why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law. He came to do for us what we could not do for anyone. He was the perfect Jewish sacrifice, if you will. And that's why Peter ends with this boom in verse 11. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved 
in the same manner as they. Who's the they? The Gentile believers. And I love that. Peter's basically saying the question is not how will the Gentiles be saved, it's how anyone will be saved. And the answer is by God's grace through believing in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this morning, and you have thought to yourself, perhaps you're even still thinking, and if you think it's your good works that win you favor with God, or if you think God will accept you because, well, I'm just a lot better than the person I live next to or I work by. If you think any of these things, you are seriously mistaken. We all fall short of the perfection that God requires. And that's why salvation is not by works, but by grace alone in Christ alone. As Peter says, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be what? Saved. That's how salvation comes. And so let me just pause and, and ask this question of all of us here this morning. Have you put your faith in Jesus and the work that He's already done for us on the cross? What are you basing your salvation on? If it's anything else than Jesus Christ, you're doomed. When it comes to defending the gospel, we must first affirm that salvation is by grace alone. Second, we must acknowledge that salvation is of God. And third, we must appreciate that salvation is for Gentiles. Now, we're reading this passage of Scripture in a day in which there are far more Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ than there are Jews. But this dispute about the gospel of grace arose in a day when the church at that time was still primarily Jewish. It was made up of people who had grown up Jewish, going to the temple, learning about Moses and the law. And now they were seeing all these former Gentile pagans with no Judaism in their background coming to faith in Christ without coming through Moses and the law. And this was a shocking thing to these Jewish believers. Now in truth, it ought to be surprising to us as well. The fact that we can be saved by grace without Judaism is a wonder that ought to bring joy to our hearts. Here's our response. We should rejoice in this. What happened, what transpired, what took place, the final decision that these leaders came to, we should rejoice in, we should celebrate in, we should rejoice that Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to become Christians, but neither can they remain pagan. Now you hold on to that phrase, because I'll address that here in a minute. When the final decision of the church leaders was read to these believers at Antioch and other Gentile churches, verse 31 says, they rejoiced over its encouragement. In other words, the final decision from these church leaders, it encouraged all these believers in these various Gentile churches. They rejoiced over it. They celebrated. 
If we read Acts 15 and all we see is a boring story about some church council, then we've missed the greater significance of this whole story. When you as a Gentile read this story, folks, listen, it ought to, it ought to just cause you to rejoice. How many of you rejoice Thursday night? Yeah. We, a lot of us, most of us here, 99.9, there were two people here that didn't rejoice. We have two Patriot fans. But we rejoiced. We got excited. Man, I was clapping my hands. But this ought to excite us even more. Well, a whole lot more. Listen, guys, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. We ought to celebrate with gratitude the wonder that we as Gentiles can be saved through the grace of God. We might call this gospel joy because salvation is by grace for every people group. After the church leaders came to their decision, they wrote, this, they wrote a letter. And they sent this letter to the Gentile churches to be read. This letter contains basically their twofold decision. It was a doctrinal decision about salvation, and it was a practical decision about living as a Christ follower. James led the way with his, this twofold decision when he concluded in verse 19 Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, here's the doctrinal decision that they came to. It's not right to trouble or burden the Gentiles by adding anything to the gospel of grace. And to that we say what? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. They concluded Gentiles and Jews are all sinners before God and can be saved only by grace alone in Christ alone. Wow! Man, this is the good news we rejoice in. As Gentiles, we don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians, but wait, neither can we remain pagan and continue to live in sin. And that brings us to our responsibility in all this. Our response is to rejoice, but we also have a responsibility as Christ followers. Notice that. Here it is in your notes. And that responsibility is we should abstain from idolatry and immorality for the sake of purity and unity in the church. By all means, Rejoice in the gospel of grace. Man, when we gather together as a church family and we sing, that is what we're doing. We are rejoicing that we are saved by grace. We are celebrating that truth, that gospel truth. And we do so knowing that the gospel is life changing. It radically changes lives. In fact, so much so that the gospel creates within our hearts a desire to pursue holiness and oneness in the body of Jesus Christ. And so James concludes in verse 20, look at it, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. 
Now, what are we to make of that list? What in the world is he talking about? I mean, let's be honest. At first glance, it seems James is saying we must keep the law of Moses. James, you just said one thing. It seems like you're backtracking here. What's up with this? Well, in summary, we don't have time to get into it. But in summary, all of these things were associated with pagan idol worship that was commonly practiced by Gentiles in that day. As one commentator writes, each of these four instructions relate to dangers associated with involvement in idolatry. James wants to make sure that these Gentiles make a clean break with their past when they embrace the living and true God. And so here's, here's kind of, let me just give you the overview, the big ideas here. Holiness must be paramount in the church of Christ. And so the chief concern among these leaders that, that did settled this issue here is over the low morality of these new Gentile believers. Yes, their conversion to Jesus Christ, it was genuine. They were not questioning that at all. They were welcoming them into the family of God. But they also recognized that they were being redeemed from a lifestyle that involved rampant sexual immorality. And this, of course, must stop. You're now a Christ follower. That's not part of who we are and what we do, James is saying. In fact, Paul continued to deal with this very issue at the churches in Corinth and in Ephesus. Idolatry and sexual immorality among professing believers. James is saying it. Paul, he says in his letters, this should not be part of who we are as Christ followers. The gospel changes us. It sets us apart. And so first and foremost, James is saying abstain from idolatry. Abstain from sexual immorality for the sake of purity in the church. Why? Because God says, be holy, for I am holy. And you're now part of my family. I have saved you by grace. I have redeemed you out of that lifestyle. And yes, you will not practice, you will not it doesn't mean you all of a sudden overnight are perfect in, 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 in changing that lifestyle, but you are progressively being sanctified. And if that's not happening, then you need to go back and you need to read the book of 1 John that we just studied over the summer. Because John would say, you need to then discern your heart if you're really a true believer or not, because the gospel changes you. Now, there were other secondary issues related to idol worship, such as eating meat offered to idols, that these Gentiles should avoid for the sake of unity in the church. These things were so offensive to Jews that they caused a barrier between Jews and Gentile believers. As Gentile believers today, we don't have to practice Jewish laws. Listen, we get to joyfully eat pulled pork and fried shrimp. Woo! Right? Why? Because we're free to do so in Christ. But our freedom from the law does not give us a license to live any way we please. There are things 
that we may do that we don't do. And here's why. Because we care way more about unity in the church than we do about our own personal liberty. And that's what James is getting at here. Here's the bottom line. Our responsibility as Gentiles who are saved by grace is not to live any way we please, but to live in a way that pleases God and preserves purity and unity within the church of God. That's the glory of the gospel that's always worth defending. Listen, we are saved by grace, we live by grace, and we extend that grace. So what was the outcome of this whole thing? What was the outcome? Well, notice the impact of the Jerusalem Council's decision. The gospel of grace was affirmed once and for all. The purity and unity of the church was strengthened, and the mission of going beyond borders proceeded without hindrance. Listen, the gospel is always worth defending when it's threatened. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, what do we do with all this? Let me quickly just give you three little statements here of what to take home. First, give thanks. Oh, give thanks and praise God for these church leaders in Acts 15 who stood up to defend the gospel of grace. Rejoice that we are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. But second, live out this gospel of grace. Live it out. Listen, do you realize that the same power that saved you is what empowers you to live a life that is pleasing to God and it's what sets you apart as a Christ follower. You see, we're thankful we don't have to be circumcised to be saved. That was the mark that set the Jewish, the people of God in the Old Testament apart. But do you know that we do have a mark that sets us apart? In the New Testament, it is baptism. That is our outward mark, if you will. And it's the initiation that we are Christ followers. And that we're going to live holy lives, pure lives, unto God and please Him. Not perfectly, but progressively. Live out the gospel. The gospel, yes, is the power unto salvation, but is also the power to live each and every day as a Christ follower. And then third, go and share this good news. Don't hoard it to yourself. Share it. Share the gospel of grace and go beyond borders to do so. You say, I can go beyond borders? Absolutely, because the borders is not necessarily geographical borders here. The borders in reference to people groups. And because we live in metropolitan city, Kansas City, we have people groups all over us, around us. Even live by them. And so go and share the gospel of grace. Go beyond borders and proclaim the good news that salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. It's always worth defending and advancing. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we thank you. Oh, how we thank you for your sovereign plan of salvation. It is your eternal plan. 
And Lord, that plan was fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And Lord, I pray and just thank you that we do not have to add works, anything that we do to our salvation, but it is all done already in Christ. All we need to do is respond, is to believe by faith. And I pray that we would do that, we would search our hearts even now and check whether we are true believers. And for those that are, I pray, Lord, that you would extend that grace, that power to now live this gospel out. That we would live as Christ followers who please you and not ourselves. And that we would go and share this gospel freely. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise team's just going to sing a chorus to give us opportunity to go before the Lord in prayer. After they're done, we'll receive our offering and then be dismissed.